Hey everyone, we've got a new pitch website, pitchpodcast.fm. Comment on your favorite episodes, get all the latest news and discuss the podcast with us, pitchpodcast.fm. If you become a subscriber, you'll be able to access real pitches and ad-free episodes. Watch member-only live streams starring us, your hosts, and ask questions we'll answer in future pitch episodes. Join us at pitchpodcast.fm and help us bring you more great content. Welcome to Pitch. For this week's episode, we pick back up with Franklin Leonard, CEO and founder of The Blacklist. The Blacklist was originally an insider's list of a year's best scripts yet to be produced, which is now expanded to become an organization serving writers the world over, seeking to get their scripts into the Hollywood ecosystem and connected to production entities seeking material. We ended our last episode with me asking Franklin who he admires in this industry that isn't a part of his team. Let's jump in and hear what he has to say. In terms of people that I admire, like uh, first, first slot on the team sheet there is definitely Ava DuVernay. Um, you know, when I look at what she's accomplished literally in like the last 11 years, it blows my mind. Not only has she sort of, uh, vaulted herself to the, the sort of top tier of, of directors, um, and then made films, um, about things that traditionally the industry has not film and television about things that the industry has not traditionally done. She's built multiple infrastructures that help other filmmakers, uh, get access to the same uh, resources that she has available to her, uh, whether it's the distribution company, whether it's the uh, the sort of uh, below the line database of talent uh, from diverse backgrounds, um, uh, countless other programs uh, that she runs through her array uh, campus on the east side of Los Angeles. Um, and then I, I also just happen to know for a fact tons of things that she's doing behind the scenes that like neither I, I can't talk about and she won't talk about. Um, it, what she's accomplished in just a decade is is absolutely extraordinary. And I think it also sort of lays bare how little others are doing relative to that, because if she and her team can accomplish that with the resources that she has, imagine what people actually could accomplish with the resources at their disposal uh, if they chose to uh, apply themselves with the same level of intensity that she does. She's a, she's a big hero of mine as well. And over the last 10 years, from not in my awareness to, wow, what what a, someone to aspire to to move through the industry like to tell stories like it's just I 100% on the same page with you about Ava. I mean, it's wild. I am, you know, Ava and I met when she was Ava DuVernay publicist, right? And like, I was like Franklin Leonard, like junior production company executive. And to yeah. think about what she's done from that moment, like, lit again, literally, like, post 2010, let's I'll, I'll err on the side of like, being absolutely sure that I'm right. That's, it's mind boggling. Um, but it also sort of, it shows what's possible. Now you have to work at the level of intensity uh, and expertise that she does, admittedly, and there are very few people who can do that. But a lot is possible if if the focus is there. Now, before we jumped on the chat, you talked about um, the blacklist. Oh, sorry, Leah, did you want to jump in? Well, I wanted you oh, to yeah. finish the, your question. I, let's let's talk about the the, the, the new uh, features the blacklist has the rolled features. out. Me, yeah, yeah. That's, that's where I was going. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, good. All right. Let's sorry, do it. sorry. No, no, great. Thank you. You were both on me for that. So thank you for that. Um, so, but one of the, this is not so much of a, a feature as it is a quirk of the particular moment in time in which we're in a massive writer strike yeah. because the AMPTP is uh, not choosing to negotiate and, and hash out the contracts going forward. You, your company, The Blacklist, chose to do what exactly for the scripts that are hosted um, since we are currently in a writer's strike? 
Yeah, we banned all employees of uh, struck companies from membership in the Blacklist website, which means that they do not have access to our database of scripts or writers and won't until the AMPTP makes an offer to the WGA that they can accept. Um, you know, the reason for this is pretty straightforward. Our job is to get uh, writers material to, you know, provide a place where writers can submit their work, evaluate that work. And when we find things that are good, pass that work along to people who can advance a writer's career or project. At present, employees of AMPTP company, of struck companies can't do that. Um, agents can, managers can, you know, and we'll connect you to them and, and they can use the database to find you at present, as can literally thousands of other industry professionals, including directors and actors and any number of other folks. But if you were an employee of a struck company right now, you don't have access to the Blacklist database, though you will as soon as the AMPTP gets it together to make a good offer. Amen, brother. That's that's amazing. What what a what a move in solidarity with the writers and all the artists really who stand to benefit from this negotiation. You know, finally getting to a good point. Well, look, I, I wouldn't say that. Like, I'm not naive enough to think that like this choice is going to affect the negotiation, right? The AMPTP is not like up at night being like, oh, we can't get those blacklist scripts. We got to go make a deal, right? Like that's not what's happening here. Sure, yeah. For us, it really was. It was about a declarative statement of of where we stand. But it was also about making sure that we could continue to provide the services that we provide to writers who are not members of the guild and members of the guild. But like, you know, if you're working on a script and you know that your script is not going to be ready in the next six months and let's hope a writer strike is done by then, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get feedback from somebody who can give you high quality feedback, right? There's no reason why if you have a great script that you shouldn't be able to connect with an agent during this time or a manager during this time or an actor who might be interested in your work. You just can't sell your work, option your work, or be in the employee of a struck company. So, you know, this is both a way for us to make sure that writers don't find themselves in situations that may have a negative effect on their future career vis-a-vis -vis interacting with a struck company. But it's also a way for us to be able to continue to provide services to writers, you know, who need them and may want them without falling afoul of the, the guild strike footing right now. So this is one of the features that uh, you guys rolled out. And this is, again, just more an indication of you and the blacklist and everyone who's um, working behind the scenes, they're having the facility and the nimbleness to implement something like this to, to again, do what you just said, you know, take care of the writers, get them feedback, and also like prevent struck companies and struck employees from accessing scripts. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would add is that this was, this was the product, this was not a product of us sort of making a snap decision at the beginning of the strike and saying, oh, we just want to be on the right side of everything. You know, I was talking on an almost daily basis to guild leadership before the strike was called. The day after the strike happened, we sent communication to literally every single one of our members, uh, writer members, and posted on social media a message from the Guild about basically that breaking the strike comes with penalties, uh, including never being able to join the WGA, and basically saying, hey, you can continue to use the website, but this is how you should do it. Those As those conversations continued, it became clear that we needed to take another step. Um, and, and we worked with the Guild in an ongoing way to make sure that the programs that we were providing, even during the strike, did not undermine the Guild's strike position, that the companies that we were suspending were, in fact, the companies that needed to be suspended. Um, and frankly, that the companies that didn't need to be suspended didn't need to be suspended. And we wanted to make sure that we did it right in consultation with the guild so we can make an announcement with the guild so that people would have 
real clarity about the fact that, look, this is where this is coming from, and these are the people that were involved in helping guide the decision. Now, the other feature that I saw an email about this probably in the last week, and I was like, this is yeah. actually pretty fantastic, was something to the effect of having the ability to put tags on your script so if a reader had a sensitivity to something that was in your script, like I don't like, I don't particularly like horror films, mm -hmm. like gore, blood, guts, that stuff, it, it doesn't make me uh, feel good. So if I were to then read a script as a reader on the blacklist, I could see those tags and be like, my feedback might not be as impartial as someone whose genre, who, who like loves that genre and doesn't like have personal issues with that. And just thinking about how effective or how much more precise and better feedback can be for writers given that one tweak. I was like kind of floored with it. I was like, this is a fantastic implementation of, you know, getting really precise with how they pair scripts with readers. Um, can you talk a little bit about the decision to that, you know, the stuff that, you know, isn't maybe obvious and how long that took to implement? Yeah. So, you know, as long as the Blacklist website has existed, we've assigned people's material to readers based on genre, Right. If we don't, we do. I didn't want horror fans reading rom coms or vice versa, unless they were both fans of horror and rom coms. Um, and, you know, uh, format, right? So, like, we don't have readers reading, you know, half hour television pilots if they don't have experience reading half hour television pilots. We, we want someone, you know, the our, our floor is every single one of our readers has to have at least a year of experience as at least an assistant in the format that they're reading. After that, we vet their feedback that they provided previously. If that feedback is good, we have them read another script and provide feedback in blacklist format. And if that feedback is good, then we invite them to read for us. And we're constantly monitoring all of their work, you know, while they're reading for us as well. And I think uniquely, you know, unlike submitting to the Nickel Fellowship or a screenwriting contest, when you get your feedback back from us, again, in an average of four or five days, if there's something wrong with it, not only can you email customer support, I personally want you to email customer support because literally the only person more upset about you getting bad feedback or feedback that doesn't reflect a full and enclosed reading of your screenplay is me as the person whose name is associated with that terrible feedback that you received. So I want you to email us. I want you to tell us it's not good. And we obviously keep track of that vis-a-vis -vis our readers. And if people aren't doing their job, they got to go. So that's how we've always done things. And I think that's kind of how most people do them. I don't know, you know, and I think people should ask before they spend money anywhere, contest or otherwise, ask the contest, what are the qualifications of your readers? How are, how is reading assigned, right? Like you have a right to know that. Um, I ha so this, this improvement, and I got to give a lot of credit, uh, particularly to Kate and Shelby on my team, who sort of led, led the way on this. Um, you know, let's say you like horror. But for whatever reason, you have sensitivity to subjects that that you just don't want to read, right? Like you may love horror, but it's like I don't I don't want to read this kind of stuff, um, and it's going to be hard for me. Like I'll do it, and I'm a good reader, so I'll give the best. I'll do give my best shot at it, but I can't. Like, it'll be harder for me to give a quote unquote unbiased opinion of it, or it's just going to be an unpleasant experience for me to read. Um, I don't want a reader to have to read something that the subject matter is going to be um, like uh, traumatic for them. And I don't know why any writer would want a reader 
reading work like that either. Um, and so I think this is a real win. Um, and adding this sort of component is a real win for everybody. It's a win for writers because they know at a minimum that the person reading their script not only has expertise generally in the format that they're reading, not only has been assigned their script based on genre, but also that there's nothing in the script that they've identified that is likely to put off a reader in the process of reading it. Now, the execution may still put them off, but that's what you should be judged on. And for our readers, it means that they don't have to, They don't. by the way, they don't even have to look at the things that have been checked because we just won't route it to them, right? It's automated. So they indicate the things that they don't want to read. Writers indicate the things that are in their script and it, it's automatically assigned based on those preferences. Um, and that means that, you know, readers aren't re 40 pages into reading something and it's like, this is a terrible rape scene. And this is like this person, like whoever wrote this uh, has no sensitivity to the reality of sexual assault and, and is taking really unpleasant glee related to it. I don't want our readers ever being in that situation. And this prevents that from happening. So I, I'm incredibly proud of it. I would say it took us a few months to, to, to get it right. Um, but it's, uh, I think it is one of the things that, I mean, it, like, it, it definitely differentiates us from every single person place else where you can submit your material. But I also just think I'm incredibly proud of of what it represents about how we are trying to protect writers and, and their work, whatever the work is, even if it is poorly written, I don't want you to have the disadvantage of having somebody that is predisposed to not responding to it. But also, you know, the readers for whom I do feel some responsibility want to make sure they're not having an unpleasant experience, you know, working at the blacklist, even in a freelance capacity. It's really a fantastic feature. And I just want to give some insight real quick for writers who are listening who have not submitted a script to the blacklist and gotten feedback. The feedback is is excellent. I have, I have a couple scripts on there and the feedback for both the way it's structured is excellent. The responsiveness with which your team responds to concerns about feedback is exactly what you said. It's very quick and they're very thorough, very articulate. I have been very satisfied with the whole ecosystem as a writer having projects up there. So for our listeners, check it out if you haven't already. It's it's very worthwhile in a different way. And I would even argue in a much more worthwhile way than other contests. It's It's a different beast, but it is like super rewarding to get this stuff from you guys and to interact with your team. Uh, that means a lot, obviously. Yeah, I would I would argue that we are significantly uh, better than the contest for yeah, yeah. for any number of reasons. Uh, not to mention the the eight hundred thousand dollars that were available on the site last year alone. Um, but yeah, look, I'll, I will uh, take the transcription and add it to our marketing deck. Cool, cool. Also, your partnerships with Women in Film and many others that you have the the contest and fellowships to are something worthwhile for people to submit their scripts to. I think right now. Yeah, I think that's the other thing I'd say, you know, the partnerships that we've had are at a very high level, right? The, you know, we have two labs with women in film specifically focused on feature writing and and episodic writing. You know, we had a partnership with UPS uh, to give $100,000 to two filmmakers to direct short films based on their feature scripts. We have another active partnership right now with General Motors to do the same thing. Uh, you know, we've partnered with in non-struct times any number of the major studios um, and also a ton of uh, community organizations like GLAD, um, the National Resource Defense Council, um, 
and the list goes on and on. So, you know, we're not working with any struck companies now and won't be until the strike's over, but um, those will come back uh, in mass probably uh, when the strike does end. And again, if your script's already hosted, those scores carry over, that record carries over into any of the opportunities that happen, you know, one month from now, six months from now, two years from now. Just because the title of our podcast is called Pitch, yeah. um, I'm going to ask this question. What elements do you think go into a good pitch? Uh, you just want to tell the story. Um, I, I, I know that sounds like the worst and most annoying advice ever, but fundamentally the best pitches in my experience, and I've been on the other side of the table for a lot of these, is someone comes in and says some version of, I want to make a movie, I want to make a TV show, this is why, and this is the story. Um, and when it's done well, all I am thinking about while the person is pitching is, oh my God, what happens next? And then when it's over, I'm a little bit sad that there is no more story to tell, uh, that I don't get to spend more time with those characters in that world. Um, and then I start thinking, okay, how likely is this writer to execute on the thing that I just heard and loved? If they execute well on it, how likely is this to, to make more money than it will cost to make it? But for the pitch itself, I, I want to be left this. I want to have the same emotional sensation that I have when I watch a great movie, which is, oh my God, what happens next? And then, oh, I'm a little sad. I can't spend more time in this world with these characters. And then the question of like, is it viable begins. But I don't start asking myself the question if it's viable until I know whether I, I, I like it and I think other people will too. You also give, I think it was a TED talk that I watched you on where you're talking about different log lines for different movies that already exist. Yeah. Um, and you were talking about what what makes a good log line and what doesn't make a good log line. Do you want to go into that just a little? Uh, I, I think the, t the TED talk you're talking about is the, the TEDx talk that I did for uh, just about the annual blacklist. Um, but I, I think the point that I was making was like, there are a lot of great films that if you just pitch the log line, most reasonable, rational people would be like, yeah, man, good luck. Right. Like, um, you know, a, a, a teen from the Mumbai slums tries to find a long lost love by going on who wants to be a millionaire. I use that example because I remember being pitched that movie and being like, Whew, good luck. Yeah. That right? was it, yeah. You know, um, but that doesn't mean it's not a good movie. And this is also why I think it's always, you know, when people are like, oh, no, I'm worried someone's going to steal my idea. Like ideas are frankly a dime a dozen and a good log line, a good premise is does not a good movie make. And what does is a good story and good characters and good plot and all of those things. And so I am always much more interested in somebody telling me what the thing is that they're doing rather than the ultra abbreviated version, because it's not you don't learn that much and it's incredibly difficult to predict whether you got a banger on your hands just based on a log line. Like sometimes it is an invitation to to learn more, right? You're like, you hear it and you're like, okay, that might be interesting, right? Like two people underwater have to get to the surface. Okay. That's an elemental human fear. There may be something here, but I'm not going to know, like actually know until I've heard the whole story until I've read the script or I've heard the whole pitch. Um, and even then, there are a bunch of ele other elements you have to put together before you have it can make a movie and then it still needs to be executed well and there are a million ways that it could fall apart but the best predictor 
is always going to be a great screenplay. I like everything that you're saying makes me think that you're a completist because you have to finish something in order to judge it under all of the kaleidoscope that it is. I think it is. Yeah, I think that I am a I try to be a person who gathers a lot of information and like uh, sources points of view from multiple sides before I make any decision. Unfortunately, I would say uh, I'm not great about completing something before I move on to the next thing, uh, which is also <laughs> a definition of a completionist. And it has been a challenge for me my entire life. What? Um... I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, from from one to another, she, she she game recognizes game. Yeah. What um you excited about any new shows or movies? Seen anything cool lately? I think the new Spider Verse is a revelation. Oh, uh, yeah. I, if you haven't seen it yet, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, I, I, Phil Lord and Chris Miller Chris Miller don't really seem to miss, and I think it uh it is largely a consequence of just who they are as people. Um, like they want to make great things, and they want people around them that want to make great things and they treat people well. Um, and if the result is across the Spider-Verse, we should all be doing that. Um, I'm really excited about the new Mission Impossible movie. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, I think that like, you know, Tom Cruise knows action. Uh, Palm Clementiev, uh, who's in the film, is a, is a friend uh, of my wife and mine. And uh, she's incredible. So I, I have every expectation that movie's going to be great, though I haven't seen it yet. Um, I'm looking forward to the new Scorsese for sure. Um, and I was really excited about the reviews coming out of Cannes and particularly uh, the members of the indigenous community that were involved in the development of the movie, uh, having such kind things to say about it. Um, I don't know, man, like I'm, I'm kind of excited about everything. Like I want everything to be good. I'm rooting for everything to be good. I don't understand people who sort of indiscriminately or for sort of, to me, inconsequential reasons root against things like i would like for every movie to be good so that i can watch it and enjoy it and not you know can continue to be the introverted person that i am um you know there are exceptions to this right like i think if there's bad behavior oftentimes involved in the people or i find that the reason for the film existence to be uh, to challenge my morals or ethics then it's a little bit different but like I want most things to be good. And even the things that challenge my morals and ethics, I probably want them to be good artistically. Yeah, sure. And then let's have a debate about the morals and ethics. But like, you know, I'd rather have great art than not. Yeah. That's why I wouldn't be a good film critic is I just, I want to talk about what I love and put more of that out into the world. I think that that's the harder part of being a good film critic, right? Like, I think that I... I there are always the enjoyable reviews that just, you know, you can tell a person has sort of sat down at their laptop and said, you know, I'm giving them the business on this one. And those are entertaining to read. Don't get me wrong. But what I look for in in criticism of any sort is I, I would rather know about the things, even if the thing on balance is not great. What, what are the things that are good about it? What, what was the filmmaker trying to do? Where did they fail and where did they succeed? And that's, look, this is also why the blacklist evaluations are structured that way. What are the thing's greatest strengths? What are the thing's greatest weaknesses? Um, because it, it's very easy to, to cite negatives about things. I can cite negatives about literally every movie of all time. Um, it's a far more difficult thing to say, no, this works and this is why, this doesn't work and this is why. In my opinion, when you add all of that up, this is my opinion about the thing. But like dunking on stuff for art, in, in an artistic medium where everything is fundamentally subjective, 
I, I think it's kind of unsophisticated. I agree. That's why my friends and I started, we watch films all the time. We started to, after we see a film, immediately list all the things that we loved about it first. Mm-hmm. Because I, being on a film set, there's so much work that goes into it. That there's at least one thing, if not several yeah. things that you can find about anything that you love. And yeah. To segue that, um, you, you both are so much more elevated than I am. I'm like, what went wrong? <laughs> how would I try to solve it? So how would I reverse engineer what I didn't like so I could fix it in anticipation on the next thing I try? <laughs> but I think I think both of those conversations have to happen about everything, mm-hmm. right? And, sure. And yeah. Yeah. Because there are very few things where you're like, yeah, that was perfect. Yeah. You know. Um, and even yeah. then, it's important to say it's perfect, and this is why I think is perfect. Or the within the perfection, these were things that stood out in particular. Yeah. Um, but you know, the the sort of post mortem investigation is always necessary as well. Um, just to segue, what do you love about what you do? Since we're talking about optimism, um, I love that I get to be a part of. Uh, making sure that people get the opportunities that their merit deserve, you know, that, that, that their work merits. Um, I think, and, and I think that I love that we get to be in, involved in a lot of p- storyteller stories in a very small way uh, that, that gives them the spotlight and the catalyst to go do what they do. Um, I think that's probably the best part. I think that I'm uh, I like the team that I work with. I think I work with some really great folks and and getting to work with them is a real joy. I think that I one of the things that I love most is when I get emails from writers who say, hey, uh, your reader destroyed my script. Like it was a bad score. They they brutalized it. But for the first time, I have some sense of what I need to do to make it better. And I'm actually excited to pursue a rewrite. Like those, those moments are particularly meaningful to me because it means that it's not just about us like cheerleading everybody. It's about us like giving people something of value to improve what they're doing. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the best part. And then the other thing is like, there's something very special to me about getting to work in a business generally with so many people who are, wildly ambitious about telling stories about what it means to be human. I think that like it's very difficult to be super pessimistic despite all of the reasons for being super pessimistic that exist in the world when your day-to-day encounters with people are with people who are dreaming and then doing the seemingly impossible. So I've got, I think I've got only one more question for you, Franklin, and it is related to kind of something that you just said, but it comes from an interview you did like five or six years ago and i just want to know if your if your observations of this phenomenon have changed or if they've remained consistent and the phenomenon is people in this industry with a sort of detachment from reality which empowers them to succeed over time is that something that you recall talking about briefly i i, I don't but i'm curious if you have uh the quote i'd be curious actually what i said and whether or not i still feel the same way it was something along the lines of uh, the people I've seen succeed in this industry fall into one of two camps. The first is they have a detachment from reality <laughs> where they can just wait it out and then they eventually succeed. And then the other camp is that they they have the support system or the finances to take the shitty job, to network, and then to learn and to wait it out until they succeed. 
Yeah, I think that that I think I would stand by that statement. I think that um, I might, you know, what I think what I was probably trying to say is that, you know, if you look at the folks who who are working in the film and television business, you either had you either had a support infrastructure that could allow you to be an assistant and make nineteen thousand dollars a year, which is I think what the going rate was when I was an assistant. Um, you know, I could afford to take on credit card debt. I bought my grandmother's car at like a steep discount, right? Like I had a great deal of privilege that allowed me to endure that to get to where I am now. And, and I think the other folks who may not have that uh, that support system are taking massive risks that they shouldn't have to take financially, emotionally, stability-wise, and are ha- have an ability... Uh, to to sort of keep hope alive that eventually it might work out. And if they can stick around long enough and endure the awfulness that they have to endure without a support system, then they have success, right? But mm-hmm. you're going to have to endure something either with a support system or without one in order to get to sort of the, 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 the shiny goal. Um, and I say that I think five years on and thinking more about the industry, I think it's really unfortunate that there are wildly talented people out there who don't have the support system. And the industry has done very little to make sure that sustainable employment opportunities are there so that people can climb the ladder and, and reach for that success. And fundamentally, I think that's really what the writer strike is about. You know, we're the writers aren't striking so that the writers at the top of the game can make more money. They're, they're striking so that it is po- even theoretically possible for a person who does not already have full access to the industry by nature of birth or relationships to start at the beginning, succeed step by step, and then one day make things that you and I can watch and love or be a part of things that we watch and love along the way. Um, And if you kick out those lower rungs of the ladder, we're going to be stuck with an industry that is almost exclusively populated by folks who already have access to this system. And that is bad for the people who want to be in the system, but it is worse for the system, which will cease to be able to make as good movies and television as, as it historically has, and will not make as much money because people aren't going to spend money to watch garbage that doesn't reflect their experience on this planet. I think uh, that was so well said. I think that anytime that we're talking about advocacy for um, the underdog, which writers notoriously are, I think about- And the next generation. Well, I think about indigenous culture in in the seven generations thinking where you're doing, you're, you're planting a tree or you're tending the field or you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, not for you and not for the next generation, but you're thinking seven generations ahead of time. So I think that that this strike and the strike that was in 2007 and 2008 and the ones before that, they've all benefited the future generation. So everybody that's out in the picket line now, they, they want it good for them. They want it good for the next people. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, we don't have to think about in terms of seven generations, let's talk about five, 10 years, right? Because that's how quickly fortunes can turn if there is not a sustainable, well-supported group of screenwriters who are ultimately the wellspring of everything that exists in this business. No one can do anything until writers do their jobs. Um, And the upside of the work that we all do is, is has more to do with writers input than anyone I've seen historically acknowledge it in this business. Which is, which is a bizarre phenomenon to me personally. Yeah, it's bad business. I think it reflects on the competence of the people who are running the companies that, 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 
pay their 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 labor inputs and uh and make and distribute this stuff yeah because we're getting close to our cutoff time i'll ask one more question and i get i get told this and it's common knowledge in the industry that if you want your script made then you should write towards production because it has a higher chance of getting made if you do that and by production i mean like your set pieces are smaller you're filming in less locations you're thinking about the budget while you're writing so do you recommend screenwriters focus on the art and business of filmmaking why or why not um in all likelihood the screen like bad news in all likelihood the screen play that you're writing right now is not going to get made right that's just statistics writing to production like i i feel very strongly that writers particularly if they're not already in the system like if you don't have an agent and your script's not going directly to a studio and you write it i would not recommend writing to budget period full stop write something amazing write something that is in its in its attempt is audacious and bold uh, and that doesn't mean it has to be big. It doesn't mean it has to be crazy. It just means that you have to go big about something about what it means to be human. I'm going to write a movie about heartbreak that makes everybody cry. You know, it, it could also be, I'm going to write the, the dopest action movie of all time. That's just set pieces from wall to wall. Um, but it needs to be audacious and bold in its attempt and you need to pull the execution off. When it comes to whether your movie sells or not, if people love it, they will back into how they can get it made. You know, you may write something that's a $250 million budget, but if it's amazing, people may say, look, we can't make this version, but can you cut three of these set pieces and like reduce the locations? But like the story is good. And if you can do it, we'll pay you to do the rewrite. Right. So I, 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 I strongly encourage writers, like don't focus on that early in your career if you're just writing something that you that, like that you're trying to break in with just write something that is so face meltingly emotionally good that anybody that reads it can't help but be in their feelings whatever feelings they are that you're trying to elicit right if you're if you're writing an action movie i want to say oh damn multiple times as i'm reading the script if you're writing a romantic comedy i want to laugh i want to worry is this couple going to get together i want to tear up Probably multiple times, you know, if you're writing like an intense drama, I want to like contemplate the nature of the human experience and what it means when people make decisions amongst all the pressures that they have in their lives. And I would like ideally that that script makes me think about the world that I live in a little bit differently than I did before I read it. If you can do all of that, the rest I'm not saying it's going to take care of itself, but you'll be on your way. And it's very, very hard to do that. And it's very, very rare that any artist can do that. And that's what you're aspiring towards. Um, I always go back to this quote from Hayao Miyazaki from this like manifesto that he wrote in the mid 80s. It's a translation, so I'm relying on the translation, but it's some version of this, which is a popular movie has to be full of true human emotion, even if it's base. The entrance should be low and wide so that everybody can be welcomed in, but the exit should be high and purified. It shouldn't be anything that emphasizes or enlarges the lowness. And, you know, popular in that description for me is not a billion dollars at the box office. It is that the people who see it love it, right? And I think that's a really good guide for, for what one should try to do 
when they set off to commit the time and resources necessary to write a script or make a movie or really make any kind of art. Well said, man. Really well said. Yeah, I'm really glad I asked. I almost didn't ask. I'm glad I did. No, no, no. Um, was I'm there kind any... of an open book. Like I'm kind of willing to answer anything. Uh, oftentimes, to my disadvantage. Don't uh, don't say that to anybody, a journalist. If anybody has seen me on Twitter, like I will, I will kind of tell you what I think for the most part. <laughs> it's, it seems to serve you well so far, man. So keep rocking it. Yeah. So, is there something that we didn't ask you that you want to talk about, or do you always wish that this question, somebody in an interview, would ask you this question? Um, I hate this question because I always want a great answer to it. And I don't know that I have it. Um, I think in large part, sort of most of the things that I, I want to say, I sort of jump on the internet and say, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'll take this opportunity to promote something that we're doing that I'm very excited about, which is uh, we're partnering with Ed Solomon, uh, who wrote, you know, Men in Black and Bill and Ted's and a bunch of Soderbergh movies uh, to put on what we're going to be, you know, uh, sort of Zoom conversations about the craft and life of screenwriters. Um, they will be free uh, to anybody who would like to participate. We ask that everybody who attends give something, however small, if you can afford it, to the one of the many strike funds uh, for the Guild and support staff. Um, but those conversations will begin on um, June 29th, I believe. Um, the first one will be Ed and Lena Dunham and Susanna Fogel. Uh, the second one will be Ed and Jesse Armstrong, who created Succession. There's a little callback. Uh, Eric Roth and uh, Tracy Whitaker, I believe. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it should be a good time. You can go to uh, blacklist.com uh, slash word by word um, for more information um, or just go to any of our social media and the information will probably be there. Tracy, be in... Tracy Oliver, not Tracy Whitaker. I will be in the audience. That sounds really cool. Yeah, there, and they're going to be a lot of them. I mean, the, the list of writers that we've already got committed for this is, is frankly almost laughable. Um, and I'm really, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really proud of the fact that, like, you know, I think Ed indicated that he was thinking about doing something like this on June 10th, and we were able to get it up and running two weeks later. So, wow, that's amazing. That's what that's we do. Fast. That's what we do. That's great, Franklin. Thank you so much for no, coming pleasure. on and being interviewed. Yeah. Uh, I had a lovely experience. I'm. This is one that I'm going to listen to again and again and again. Uh, yeah, that's, very, that's very, very kind. Thank you. Real pleasure. And keep doing what you do, man. You, you offer uh, so many services to writers and to the industry and to the world at large that I can't you know, yeah. help but keep trying to be encouraging. Not that you need it, but it's just like super inspiring for me to see and hear like everything that you're doing and the way you think about it all and like your insight, it's, it's been real, a real pleasure for me as well. I really appreciate it. I mean, the last thing I'll say is we are doing uh, our best as we understand it. If anybody ever has thoughts, constructive criticisms, things that we could be doing better, like I'm on Twitter and uh, I welcome uh, the thoughts and feedback. It, it's sort of how we make things better. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, for, uh, for myself, this has been amazing again. Um, Thank you, Franklin. And I guess cheers from Hollywood. Cheers from Hollywood. Cheers. I'd like to say thanks again to our guest, Franklin Leonard. Make sure to check out the Blacklist website. It's at blcklst.com. That's blcklst.com. Also check out Word by Word, hosted by writer Ed Solomon and the Blacklist. Thanks for listening.
If you are on the fence about subscribing, know that a portion of all subscription fees go toward the nonprofit Young Storytellers, raising voices one story at a time.